0: let's pray after all of that and uh and we'll get to work loving father how good it is as we've been saying this morning how good it is to be here with you your people in an environment that is actually unique to your recreating work in this world to your victory over sin its curse and its hold on our hearts and the lives of people here we acknowledge you as good god who loves us who cares for us who is forming and fashioning a new community around an experience of grace found in Jesus. That's because of what Jesus has accomplished and the Holy Spirit has applied that to our lives that we now gather here like this with, with these renewed worship priorities that, that pour out in gratitude towards you and, and find our, our deepest desires satisfied in you. You are bread that sustains us and living water that renews us. And this morning as we come to your word here in these psalms, in Psalm 42 through to 43, would your spirit convict us and comfort us in truth, that we would have our hearts warm with affection for you. And we thank you that because we stand and live in Jesus' name, that we can confidently speak with you like this. We can come to you in prayer and trust that you in turn hear and speak back to us. Amen. Alright. Let me just check something. Am I on my, on my thing? Cool. I got a question for you. What do you do when your head doesn't match your heart? Or when your heart doesn't match your head, whichever way you want to put it. Like your head knows that God is good. And as we saw last week when we were looking at the Psalms, that God is good and that he pours out all his goodness, that he he pours out all his creative resources and power to place that goodness, his glory in you, to make much of you. But then rather than marvel at this and explode with praise, our hearts are dry. What, What do you do? What do you do when your head doesn't match your heart? Your mind knows that you should love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your strength, with all your soul, with all your might, right? We know that. That's what it says in Deuteronomy 6, 4-7. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. And these words that I command you today, they shall be on your heart. Nothing in here about an intellectual-only Christianity all deeply visceral, all emotions, all, all expressions. And it's not, a, it's not an optional, it's a command. But what do we do when, when we don't feel that, but when there's nothing but dryness there? It's not just some antiquated Old Testament idea either. Jesus is quoted as, as referring to this th- three times. In all three of the Synoptic Gospels, he's imploring us you know, what's the greatest command? What's the one thing that we should do if we're going to follow you, if we're going to be in right relationship with God? And he says, you should love the Lord your God. In Matthew 22, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This the great and first commandment. Mark 12, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind and with all your strength. Again, in Luke, Jesus answers them. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind. Just as you would then go and love your neighbor. If there's one thing that must define, define the Christian, it's, it's passionate. Consuming all of life love for God. Above all other things. Worship for God above all other things. So that our lives then kind of... Ah, like as Luke describes him in Acts 17, 28, in him, in him we live and move and we have our being. Or as Paul kind of tries to sum it up, he says, to live is Christ. To live in this life is to be like Jesus and love God perfectly and obey God perfectly. But then to die would be game because then we really would be with him and be able to actually do it. Such is the love of God for us. We organize our lives around experiencing him like this. But what do we do when our hearts are dry and we just don't simply feel what we what we know we we know? Or perhaps we no longer feel what we once felt. What do we do as Christians when we suffer from the condition of spiritual dryness? Now, if you're a a new Christian or perhaps a Christian who was told or led to believe that Christians, if they're, if they're really truly Christians, then they should never have doubts or fears or experiences of spiritual barrenness. Then if you're in that space, you might be wondering, well, well, what then have I done wrong? Is this, have I done something wrong? And spiritual dryness is God's moody punishment. He's given us the cold shoulder, the silent treatment. That's, that's not how God operates. We saw last week, one of the, or the week before, sorry, one of the ways God moves towards us in love is to not stay silent when, when we see, when we do something wrong, but rather to, to move toward us, to, to to correct us. So spiritual barrenness is not necessarily a symptom of sinful practice. We, then you might be wondering, well, if that's not it, then perhaps, or well, it just perhaps, my faith isn't real at all. Perhaps if I'm no longer experiencing God, then perhaps what I had wasn't real in the first place. What do you do when your head doesn't match your heart? Well, Psalm forty-two and into forty-three was written to let you know. That spiritual dryness is a condition that faithful people, that genuine Christians can experience, will experience. People who love God will experience spiritual barrenness, dryness. Now, knowing that, we could all just pack up and go home, I reckon, and that could be enough in itself. It's not always a symptom of sinful practice, nor is it an indicator of disingenuous faith. But challengingly, it is all too often par for the course of the Christian journey and should not be something where we just give up in despair, but rather is the time to pour into our soul all the agents, all the available agents of grace that... We have. starting in Psalm 42, uh, <laughs> begins what is known as the second chapter of the book of Psalms. And because of the similar language that we have in Psalm 42 and in Psalm 43, and because there are refrains in both of those Psalms that are, that are identical and repeated, we actually think that both of these Psalms were originally together. One Psalm. Uh, Some of the things, like Psalm 43, has no heading. So commentators believe they're originally one psalm. I've got no idea when or how they got separated. Well, I do, but it was too boring to tell you. But but, but they were originally together is what we feel. So that's how we're going to address them. Again, another thing about this psalm is that we, we don't know the author of this psalm. It's an anonymous psalm. But we know that it's written as an instructional psalm to be used by the sons of Korah. If you look at the top there, there's this little word, M-maskil, which is I think what they're going to do to that deer but um, it's some word in Hebrew and, and, and the best translations they have of it is that this word is that it's instructional it's to gain wisdom it's for, it's for, for knowledge and those kinds of things so here's a psalm written uh, for the sons of Korah to be used in worship for the instructing of people for wisdom to let you know that spiritual barrenness is something that people experience. The sons of Korah who it's written to were a group of priests who were charged with the ministry of singing. They they led Israel in their worship. We we read about it in Second Chronicles twenty there. So we know this psalm comes to them by way to say, Hey, let's have this in our worship services that we can know about this thing. We can also take a good guess, an obvious conclusion about the author, that he himself was once involved in leading the worship there now let's see how we go all right in verse 4 the psalmist says these things i remember as i pour out my soul how i would go with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of god with glad shouts and songs of praise a multitude keeping festival this guy was one of the lead figures of the of worship for the for the people of Israel. He led them in their major festivals, the Passover, uh, the Festival of Weeks or Pentecost, the Festival of Booths or Tabernacles, whatever language you're used to. These festivals were full of ritual and sound and smell and, and visual aids to enable God's people to come together and, and relive, if you like. Like they weren't there, but they allowed them to relive the experience of the great redemptive and saving acts of God. Kind of a little bit like what we do with communion. And Jesus says, hey, do this in remembrance of me. And the remembrance is not like, oh yeah, 2,000 years ago on this day. No, the remembrance is, hey, at some point in history... God in Christ came and saved me and it was real and I felt it and that's what we're remembering and that's what, that's what's going, that's what this guy was doing. He brought, he was to corporately encourage each other in the goodness of their God and to passionately worship him. This is what he's remembering he used to do. But he is no, now no longer able to participate in the normal rhythms of his faith. He finds himself way up in the north there somewhere. One thing is certain about this guy, one thing is certain about this psalmist, he is what we would call a, a person of genuine faith. A devout Christian who loves God, whose life, whose life has been about God. Now, we don't know his name. Some people think it could have been David. And he's writing about his experience when he was hiding out in the north. Uh, you know, cut off from his people, cut off from the temple. Couldn't get back down there because his son was trying to kill him. It could be too that it's a Levite priest, one of the sons of Korah, taken off much later on in the Babylonian exile and he's recalling his imprisonment en route to Babylon up there in the north as he swings around, up in the mountain ranges of of Hermon, of Mizar, up there where the river Jordan begins up in the mountains. And this paints this visual aid of the kind of chaos that his soul feels Deep calls to deep. The Jordan up in the mountains drops rapidly uh, and tumultuously through through waterfalls and through the hills there. They roar and they crash. And as he sits there, they give him a little bit of a visual aid and he writes about them, about how his soul is in turmoil. A phrase that he repeats all through the psalm. Whether it was a giant of the faith like David or a Levitical exile, the psalm is written under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit so that out of their experience of spiritual dryness, or even we could say uh, situational depression, that experience has now been placed into Scripture so that it can forevermore be helpful for, for God's people to appropriately deal with a similar experience. The psalmist begins by stating his condition straight up. There's no false spirituality or putting on a a stiff upper lip by this person of profound faith. They are experiencing this condition of spiritual dryness. As we saw from verse 7, it has created incredible inner turmoil. And it finds its expression in the repeated refrain, Why are you so downcast? O oh, my soul, why are you in turmoil within me? As the psalmist thinks about this, he, he searches for an image, a vivid metaphor to describe the desperation of his soul. The picture of a panting deer forms. Or maybe it is David writing this psalm, thinking back to his hunting days, a stalking deers. Often the picture, though, of this of this image here, uh, is pictured like on our fridge magnets or on our coffee cups is one of a, a tranquil, uh, serene soundings like, like this one. And like if you Google this, like a thousand images of, like this come up. However, that might not be the normal rhythm of a deer. They are peaceful animals, graceful animals until some, something or, or someone, someone like I saw, I saw Pete Isles here. Someone like Pete Isles comes along and, dis- and disturbs and brings chaos into the space of poor old deer here. Now that deer must run for its life and it runs and it runs and it finds itself in unfamiliar territory and then perhaps desperate for relief it heads down into a valley to find a stream only to be greeted by a dry creek bed. That is a panting deer. It's not sipping at a tranquil pool. It's desperate to find life-giving water. This is the image that the psalmist uses. A deer under duress. A deer searching for water, but a deer only finding a dry creek bed. The psalmist switches from the metaphor to the condition of his soul. Like the deer thirsts for water, his Soul thirsts for the living God. When, when shall I come and appear before God? Or literally, when shall I see God's face? When, when are we going to have this intimate communion again? Over and over throughout the psalm, the psalmist reveals that he has lost the personal presence and experience of God. Can't taste, can't smell, can't feel God, can't, can't see or hear God in my soul. Thoughts and sounds and smells that used to comfort him are gone. The songs and the voices of of God's people in corporate worship are are now drowned out by the taunts and, and the oppression of adversaries and enemies that drag him deep into the watery chaos of his soul. The condition that the psalmist describes here is a loss of the presence of God but certainly not a loss of the belief in God. The usual means of experiencing God and his heart and his soul are absent. Or they are just simply not doing what they used to do. Prayer, reading scripture are dry experiences now. The personal relationship has run dry and he finds himself in a spiritual drought. Admitting the condition is the first step to curing the condition. Often we would be hesitant to be as bold as this psalmist because we believe the lie that Christians should never struggle with spiritual vitality. That's just not true. And then B, because often such an admission is followed by a forensic behavioral pop quiz to identify the cause. Well, you know, you've been praying, you've been praying against Satan, casting out demons, you know, renouncing the work here, you've been reading your scripture, what do you, what do you, if we can find, if we can just find what you've done wrong or find what you've not done right, then maybe we can fix you. I had a senior pastor that was like that once, it just simply wasn't helpful. You know, A plus B should equal C. But sometimes, we just have to be able to sit with people in this uncomfortable space and recognize it's not something they have done wrong or some deficiency in the quality of their faith, but rather something they are going through as part of their faith. Look at this psalm. One of the things that makes this psalm, which is a psalm of lament, different to other psalms of lament, is there is no confession in it. The psalmist, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is not led to identify where he's sinned or failed or what he's done wrong to bring this uh, dryness, this spiritual barrenness on him. Spiritual barrenness, dryness is not always caused by spiritual infidelity. Well, at least not in this psalm. No, rather what he's led to articulate is what spiritual dryness feels like. He's talking about his experience. He's talking about what it feels like to be someone who loves God but feel dry. And he gets that out in the open with God. As distant as God is emotionally, the psalmist knows in reality God is still close. He is God of his life, as we see in verse 8. Spiritual dryness is a condition that even giants of the faith can suffer. Now, we're going to look at some of the cures that this psalmist come up with. But before uh, we look at how the psalmist goes about curing the condition of spiritual dryness, what we want to do, or what I want to do quickly, is canvas some of the things that can hinder the healing. And I've called them causal factors, because while in this psalm there's no call to repent from some sin, there's no obvious cause of the sin. You are just out of your mind if you think you can recover from spiritual dryness or not be hit by spiritual dryness if you are just passive in your Christian faith. This is how spiritual dryness gets you and runs over the top of you. It's why so many Christians are just sitting in the car park not knowing what to do. They can't get rid of their faith. It's too real. But they can't move forward because the spiritual dryness has them confused. Okay, quickly, just a, a couple of things that we can take a defensive stance, a proactive stance, if you like, against uh, spiritual dryness. And if they're left unaddressed or if we begin to participate in them, these things can just uh, exacerbate spiritual dryness and in some cases even cause it. The first thing in, is disruption of community. You find it here in the psalm, verse chapter 42, 4 and 6, verse 6. And even uh, like the reference in 43, 3, the psalmist finds himself out of his normal church community. He no longer has the rhythm of regular church attendance, of the hearing of, of light and truth, of God's law and God's love to lead him. This is not helpful to spiritual dryness, and it's indeed a hindrance to healing from it. He can contribute to it. Sometimes when people get into spiritual dryness, what they think is, I'm going to retreat from church. I'm going to pull back from church, thinking that I don't belong here until I feel like the songs that we're singing, until I feel like God is present in my life. That is not... That's a hindrance to healing. It's not the time to pull back. Then there are others who, who claim that they actually don't need a church family to be a vitalized Christian. They can do it all by themselves. Not so, says the psalmist, because this is what he longs for. It's what God built him for. As a Christians, we recognize that Jesus is not saving a bunch of individuals, but a radical new community. There's nothing private or isolated about it. In fact, the psalmist's isolation from like-minded, faithful people who will both come along and challenge him, both come along and encourage him, is what he misses. Rather, he is now surrounded by those who question God's relevance, question God's presence. The rhythm of of being with God's people is now not even there. Now all he's got is people who don't believe at all in his God when the only input into your life is constant feet of denial of God, uh, uh, your faith, taunts about your faith, then listen to how, how the psalmist describes how he's feeling in verse 10. It's like a deadly wound. It's like a deadly wound inside of me. It's bringing death. It's bringing spiritual dryness. Being in community heals the wound. You can't live the Christian life apart from being in community. Spiritual dryness is hindered when you lose connection, when you get isolated. Secondly, there's a thing, just quickly, disillusionment of circumstances can hinder it, or disillusion of events. Often when things go wrong, we ask, or someone asks us, now, where is your God now? Now you've lost your job, or your marriage is straight, or your health if God is for you, then then why is your life... Why so downcast, O oh my soul? Why is your life in turmoil? That's all through the psalm. The psalmist, psalmist recasts his perspective again in verse 8. Imagine if that happened without God in my life. He's the only rock I've got in this situation. He's the one who, who will actually eventually vindicate me down in one. Allowing circumstances to ultimately shape our reality hinders our recovery from spiritual dryness. Focusing on how environments and circumstances make us feel hinders our recovery. And then there's a third one there, uh, deprivation of physical health. Now, in verse 3, the psalmist says, My tears have been my food day and night. It's, it's, it's over-the-top language describing trying to describe that the only comfort that this person has day and night is grief like that's all he's got dr martin Lloyd jones he's a pastor but before he was a pastor he was actually a physician a doctor that's why he's called dr martin Lloyd jones he's one of the people who grabbed this passage and he looks at it like a doctor would look at it like a person analyzing this person he says whatever else is going on here here is a person who is not eating and not sleeping Without proper rhythms of physical care, your spiritual life, your spiritual vitality will be a victim. How you feel physically impacts how you feel mentally, how you feel spiritually. If you are physically deprived somehow, it will shape your spiritual condition and it can hinder recovery. My old senior pastor, Graham Smith, used to say sometimes the most spiritual exercise you can do is to get a good night's sleep. Just to look after yourself. But there is no quick fix to spiritual dryness. And indeed, by the end of the psalm, the psalmist concludes not with a ha-ha-ha, yes, here I am alive, woo But rather with the refrain of hope on the way that meters all through the psalm. Hope in God, for I again shall praise him, my salvation and my God. Spiritual vitality is restored via a process, via a journey. Curing spiritual dryness can take time. But here are a few things that the psalmist does on the journey, on the road to recovery. The first thing he does, and we see it like literally in verse 4, is he pours out his soul. In a way, the whole psalm is the pouring out of his soul, but the psalmist names the activity here in verse 4, prayer lament pouring out of his soul about the spiritual dryness spiritual dryness is the absence of feeling the presence of God the psalmist is now done with the doing of activity to try and regain that feeling try and work that feeling back up prayer has been dry recalling scripture has been dry there's just been no gain at all in these practices now the psalmist just talks to the absent God about his absence perhaps the first thing the simplest thing to do is to let God know you miss him pour out your soul to God I remember when I was first saved I miss you I just miss you in my life I'm pouring out my soul I miss your presence. It's just harsh honesty. Secondly, the psalmist analyzes his hopes. That is, he analyzes where his hopes are. He, ta- he takes. Oh, sorry, this takes place three times throughout the psalm. Two times in in 42, in verses five and eleven, and once in 43, five. Why, why so downcast, O oh, my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hoping God. For I again shall praise him, my salvation and my God. It's somewhat of a rhetorical question or rhetorical conversation that the psalmist is having. He has it all the way through. He seems to be bouncing between these two things. Perhaps... Perhaps he's thinking, perhaps the downcast soul might be due to misplaced hopes. He's analysing where his security and hopes are ultimately defined. In his circumstances, in his environment, in his feelings. Have these things been shaping the reality of my soul? Like there's no confession of sin. This is just observation of what life's doing to him. What are you doing, soul? Of course these things will leave you dry. You can't hope in these things hope in God. Spiritual dryness brings to the surface inordinate loves false hopes. Why so downcast, O my soul? What what gives my why how did I get here? What gives what's been given me seeking to give my soul significance? People approving of my preaching and increased attendance at church, my children, my marriage. What good thing is it? That you think represents God's approval. God's presence in your life. The psalmist is doing the work of reframing where he puts his hope. So while I am no longer the head of the festivals, leading the festivals, and I might have lost the environment, the things that give me approval, or I thought gave me approval, I am now relocating the source of my soul's hope. The soul source. Hope in God. The God of my salvation. And this leads the psalmist, third thing, to remember the grace of God. Remembering is a a major theme in this psalm. He feels forgotten, swallowed up by the chaos of his soul, even rejected, and even though in in 43 there he takes refuge in God. The psalmist brings to mind, though, in all of this, the covenantal love of God, his steadfast love, it says in verse 8. That is the revealed and promised grace of God, day after day, the Lord directs or commands his steadfast love that word we know uh, we 've been looking at means said toward him and night and at night this this is his song within me, like a prayer to the God of my life. The Hesed of God, the grace of God stands forth he remembers. How God is gracious. How God in history, when, when Israel's people have felt abandoned, he's always come, he's always come. Because he's promised to be steadfast and loving. And now in this environment of spiritual barrenness, the grace of God, the steadfast of love, God, love of God is there. It's a contrast to feeling the absence of God in the current circumstances. Pouring out his soul, analysing his hopes, remembering what it's, tr- remembering what is true. Acts like a kind of a lifeline that God has thrown the psalmist. Amidst the swirling tumults of spiritual dryness, the psalmist now encounters something unexpected. Grace. And his heart grips the line of God's grace. He has said, and he fastens his hand around the promises of God, toward him he says the god of my life despite this spiritual dryness and finally one of the things for curing spiritual dryness comes from actually preaching to your own soul not just listening to your own soul and in a way the psalmist has been doing this the whole way through He's not so much speaking to God as he is preaching about God to his soul. For too long, he has been listening to the inner voice of disillusion and discouragement. The inner voice that's been telling him, you know, this is whatever. And now he starts to say, no, it's time for me to start speaking back. Again, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones comments. Have you realized that most of your unhappiness in life is due to the fact that you are listening to yourself instead of, Talking to yourself. Take those thoughts that come to you the moment you wake up in the morning. You have not originated them, but they are talking to you. They, they bring back problems of yesterday and so on, etc. Somebody is talking. Who is talking? Yourself is talking to you. Now, this man's treatment This man's cure for this this talking in Psalm 42 was this. Instead of allowing the self-talk to him, he starts talking back to himself. Why art thou cast down, O my soul, he asks. His soul has been depressing him, crushing him. So he stands up and says, Self, listen for a moment. I will speak to you. The psalmist inserts truth and light to guide his thoughts in his self-talk. I will say to God, my rock, my soul thirsts for the living God. A prayer to the God of my life. Amidst all the conversations of being forgotten, rejected, he punches back with truth. He fights for hope. On this side of the cross, we know the greatest grounds for hope. Jesus Christ, crucified for our sins, triumphed over death. So the main thing we must learn to preach to ourselves is is the gospel. We must preach it to ourselves. When we start hating on ourselves because we we, we think spiritual dryness represents our unworthiness or, or God's rejection of us, we must remind ourselves of God's steadfast love. Perhaps Paul gives us some language in Romans 8, 3, 3, 31 to 50, 35 Kind of paraphrase. Listen, self. If God is for you, who can be against you? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for you, how will he not also with him graciously give you all things? Who shall bring a charge against you as God's elect? It is God who justifies Who, Who is it to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, he was raised. Who is at the right hand of God? Who indeed is interceding for you? Who shall separate you from the love of Christ? Spiritual dryness? I pray not. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you again. Uh, there are just some strange things in your word some awkward things some things that no normal person would put in a book that they were trying to convince other people was about the goodness of God and here we find a psalm about the reality of spiritual dryness in your people and we thank you that you've placed it in there to instruct us, to give us wisdom around this subject, to say that this is something that can get hold of you, but it's not something that can destroy you or or destroy our faith. We thank you for the agents of grace that we can use to slowly work our way back uh, into a vitalized faith. We thank you for the church community that you have given us, people who are for us, people who who love us, Will we continue just to regularly, in rhythm, uh, be amongst each other? I pray for anyone who's in this space at the moment, that feels like God is, is absent. That you would feel his grace. That you would know his profound love for you. And then it would warm your heart with affection for him once again. That you shall praise again his name, your salvation and your God. Amen.